You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today we're talking with Dr. Jessana Cooper. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama right now, and Dr. Cooper is a local obstetrician who works at the Simon Williamson Clinic here in town, and they've had consistently a C-section rate at the clinic that is roughly half of what the other local hospitals have maintained over the last last few years. That's really especially interesting because the clinic serves a much higher risk population than the surrounding hospitals that have much higher C-section rates. So Dr. Cooper is here partly to talk to us about how they achieved a C-section rate that's so much lower than the rest of the community, serving a higher risk population, as well as some other things. Um, I think my favorite thing about Dr. Cooper is that she comes from a feminist perspective. So she's an OB who is first a feminist. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. You're so welcome. So talk to me about that c-section rate that is so much lower than the area it's really interesting and you know with you introducing me as a feminist because we did not set out to lower our c-section rate that was not a goal that we set or a plan of action that we made i changed the way i practiced just in sort of a natural way because I was applying my feminist philosophies and my eyes were opening to different ways that things could be done, particularly with labor and delivery, that were different from the way I had been trained and different from what I had been exposed to during training and in my earlier years of practice. And what we noticed was these we made these changes where we put women as the primary decision makers for their labor and delivery. And the C-section rates went down. (laughs) And then we were able to expand on those. We saw women who were interested in being primary decision makers and the way that they chose to deliver. And we were able to take what we learned from their labors and suggest them to some of our higher risk um, clients and that improved their outcomes. So it was surprising and exciting And quite honestly, every time we see the rates and we sit in our quality meetings and, you know, it's C-section rates are going down and breastfeeding rates are going up and NICU admissions are going down. And it's always surprising. (laughs) It's always, and it's exciting. And I guess now we expect it, we see, you know, but um, it was just, it was just a really interesting unplanned result of changing our philosophical approach to birth. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It is. <laughs> it was it really surprised me. I am um, I have always I mean part of the reason that I went into OBGYN was because I'm a feminist and I was sort of torn between pediatrics and OBGYN as far as which populations are dearest to my heart when it comes to improvement and OB is nice because it's both, and also because ultimately what I care about is empowering women. And it was not, you know, but in the years of medical training, which, I mean, it's eight years of, it's it's a pretty brutal process, especially the last four years of residency, I lost a little bit of that. Um, Tell me about it. You know, it's one of those, you're so tired. (laughs) I was going to say, I think sleep deprivation is a huge part of it. Um, We worked on average anywhere between 100 and 120 hours a week. And we were, you're trying to learn all kinds of information. You're given huge amounts of responsibilities where you feel that one mistake could have dire consequences, but you feel unprepared (laughs) to be doing that and you're tired. And I you know, the verbal abuse, I did not 
experience physical abuse. I think sometimes people do with, um, you hear stories in the operating room of people throwing instruments and things, but just you're made to feel that you are constantly inadequate and you really are just too tired to think for yourself is what I think comes out of that. So you learn what you need to learn as far as, um, the, you know, medical knowledge and the textbook and all of that is important and staying up on the studies and reading the studies, but critical thinking is not a part of that training. And so you don't go in and read the textbook and read the studies and then form an opinion about it. It's sort of handed down and this is the algorithm and this is the guideline and this is how we do it. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think to be able to function under stress, it's important to be able to tap into that so that it becomes a reflex rather than a process of thinking. And I think that the medical legal situation, it's very dangerous to move on from those algorithms. Um, dangerous in a financial or legal sense. Absolutely. As far as for your career and, you know, and in general, I mean, there are studies that show following the algorithms overall is going to result in better outcomes when you look at particular outcomes. So that's where it becomes interesting is we study certain outcomes that we as a medical profession have deemed to be important. And they are important, but there are many, many other outcomes that aren't a part of that conversation. And they are important to women. And stepping back and saying, which outcomes are important to you? And here's the risk with this outcome and this outcome. And then also trying to put in the ones that are hard to put a number on is still important. Um, and then when you do that and you see the outcomes that medicine has looked out changing, you know, it's just a different approach and you can get different results with it. So, and birth is always going to have risk. There is no way to have a risk-free birth. And modulating those risks and choosing which ones you minimize through interventions that are available to you, that's up to you. That should not be up to me. So we made some of those kinds of changes and our outcomes improved as far as, again, I mean, our hemorrhage rates actually are going down because I think there's other things that are changing. But um, again, with C-sections going down, NICU admissions going down, breastfeeding rates going up. Interesting. We've not been checked. You know, we don't track anemia later on, you know, six months down the road. That's not something that I have access to, and we don't track... Meaning our, you at your clinic. Right, and we mm -hmm. don't track postpartum depression. So I can't speak to any of those kinds of things. But you probably get sort of a feel from your patients, right? I think, um, you know, with some of them, I think I do. I mean, I would say anemia, I get a feel for. I'm not sure with depression. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of... That's a harder one to get a handle on. And I still don't, because of the way healthcare in the U.S. is, you know, I don't see patients routinely until six weeks afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of my patients don't have insurance after that because Medicaid, um, the threshold for qualifying for Medicaid is lower if you're pregnant than if you're not pregnant. So once they're out of that postpartum um, period, I don't see them again. Because they don't have they that don't insurance, have insurance anymore. Correct. Yeah. And you do have a much higher or a higher proportion of yes. patients who yes. are on state insurance. Yes. Than yes. Some of the other. So that is changing a little bit because um, of the way of who's seeking out our care now. But when I first came to Simon Williamson Clinic, we were about 85% Medicaid. Okay. And um, we are now about 60%, which is more of the average just sort of based on state numbers. And actually, tell me when you first got there, do you remember what the C-section rate was? Because I know it's gone down in the it time has. you implemented those policies. Yeah, so when I came in 2013, the C-section rate was about 33%. and Which is about the national average. Exactly, which is why we weren't targeting it. It was not mm -hmm. something that was out of range mm -hmm. with the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. So, um, And it has dropped... It bounces around now between 22 and 26 percent, mm -hmm. and our primary rate has dropped to somewhere between 9 and 11 percent, depending on the yeah. month and the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, can you explain what the primary rate is for people who don't know? Um, so the primary rate is just someone who has not had a C-section before who gets a C-section. Mm -hmm. So then that larger number includes everyone who has had a C-section before 
and then goes on to have a repeat C-section. Yes, because, and one of the things affecting our rates is we have more and more women choosing for a vaginal birth after a cesarean section. And um, we have tried very hard to support women in that choice. Yeah, which can be difficult around here and in a lot of parts of the country. The, yes. the national rate, the national repeat C-section rate is around 90%. So that means about nine in 10 women who have a C-section will go on to have, you know, future births by C-section. So, and one of the big reasons for that is that hospitals and providers just don't support women having vaginal births after cesarean, which is primarily a liability and um, a provider or hospital institutional driven policy, not a safety, you know, safety as the bottom line, um, women as decision makers. Yes. Approach. I think that's true. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So that's even a little bit revolutionary, especially in this area. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, that. and I will say that is not something I was, certainly during my training, we supported vaginal birth after C-section. Now, you could see some of it in that, in theory, we supported it, and then when they, when those women came in, it was not really supported in that we had a very low threshold to call the C-section. Um, mm-hmm. So, and... ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, has issued new VBAC guidelines, which for me personally makes it easier to support VBAC because even if it's not what community standards are necessarily, you at least have this national body behind you. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have really changed with their support. They've come out much more strongly supportive of Mm -hmm. VBAC. There are still issues with Hospital policies that can make it difficult, where hospital policies will require you to have an in-house anesthesiologist and an in-house OBGYN mm-hmm. the entire labor. And that's something that we're fortunate we can do at our hospital, but I know smaller hospitals may not have mm-hmm. um, that kind of support. And they may not, honestly, I'm not saying that that's something you should have to have to have a VBAC, but I do know that that's one of the things that limits women's access to that. That's a reason that they sometimes don't support it. Right. And just for some background, um, that that idea of having that in-house um, anesthesiology support or 24-7 um, access is based on a previous ACOG guideline Yes, that they actually stepped back from following that when they realized the implications, which was that hospitals were saying, well, then you can't have a VBAC here if right. we don't have this 24-7 access. And ACOG said, actually, that wasn't our intent. We didn't want to stop women from having VBAC. We were actually, you know, just letting hospitals know that this is, you know, the safest practice or the, you know, the best practice. Sure. So it, I think, had sort of an unintentional effect. And um, now we have a really mm-hmm. high repeat C-section rate, uh, partly due to that. Yes, so, I think that's true. There's well, always unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go to break really quickly. And we'll come back and um, get into a little bit of fun stuff, I think, that stuff that I want to ask you about that I've had questions about. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll be right back. And we're back with Birth Aloud and Dr. Cooper from Birmingham, Alabama. Tell me a little bit more about your training, which you touched on. I know there are, what, two medical schools in Alabama? Yes. So I went, um, UAB Medical School is where I went to medical school. And, you know, for that part, I would say I didn't feel emotionally abused or beaten up after medical school, particularly. Um, It was certainly a rigorous kind of academics that I did not feel encouraged critical thinking or free thinking. Um, You know, it's a I think that it's trying to find the right words, but I think that medical school, it's very hierarchical and there's a little bit of a military style to it in that, you know, it's if you're the third year medical student versus the fourth year medical student, first year resident versus the fourth year resident, the attending physician, it really, you don't, a third year medical student is not going to challenge an attending physician's decree (laughs) on any end. The attending physician clearly knows more medicine, and there's a lot to be learned from that. But um, this idea that scientific and medical knowledge is without bias 
is very dangerous. And I have a liberal arts background prior to medical school, and so I was taught to look for bias in all written works <laughs> or verbal works. So I guess things are changing. You know, I, I went to school in the time of books. But, um, and that is not the way we approach medical knowledge, which is interesting because it changes so quickly. You know, you work with some of these older OBGYNs and they laugh and they say, you know, we used to give IV alcohol for preterm labor. And I think the thing to remember is everyone is doing their best. You know, I do think it's important to remember that most physicians, not all, but most physicians went into medicine because they wanted to help people. And if you talk to people who are in medical school and they talk about their path to medicine, it is amazing how many people have a personal story of mm -hmm. someone who was sick or someone who was close to them who came into contact with the medical community. And that was what inspired them to follow this path. And I think it's very easy then to get separated from your initial values that brought you there but I do think at its core that's what you know physicians are trying to do their best and physicians are human and we have limitations and we have fears and we have anxieties and, and trauma and trauma and yeah which we can get into with the residency discussion but medicine doesn't allow for those it you are not allowed to have fears and anxieties and you are not to mention weakness. And if you make a mistake, it's best not to talk about it because it's not that you make a mistake and you are supported and comforted. It's, yeah, you killed somebody. You're the worst person ever. You go home and deal with that. And so, you know, physicians have very high suicide rates and mm -hmm. high rates of substance abuse and Right now, people are talking about burnout rates. You know, physicians are leaving the field in droves. And of course, there's lots of reasons for that. But I think our training and the expectations that are set as a profession have a lot to do with that. Um, residency was even more so, I would say, <laughs> a sort of military style. Mm -hmm. And I understand that that's probably more in surgical subspecialties than in medical. Although I think that the harassment just sort of takes on a different angle. But, and again, like I sort of mentioned earlier, I think there's a reason for it in that sometimes you have to act quickly and it needs to be instinct and you don't have the time or the luxury to really sit down and think it all out and process. Mm -hmm. But you have sleep deprivation and you know, your senior residents are mean to the junior residents and the attendings are mean to everyone and the nurses are mean to everyone. Um, you know, as a resident, I think a lot of time the nurses are working out, they've been treated badly by physicians and this is their chance to be on top. But in my personal experience, and it was interesting how it was different shifts, it was the daytime nurses were just mean as hell <laughs> and the nighttime nurses were lovely. And as I became higher up in my, you know, when I was a fourth year resident as opposed to a first year, I just would not come out on the labor floor during the daytime because I could do that. <laughs> and you can't do that when you're in the first year. But the sleep deprivation and the way we handle mistakes, I, um, I remember a time that I had gone home and I was sleeping. I'd been, I'd been at work for 36 hours without sleep and I had misdiagnosed a breach so I had gone in, I think I was a third year resident, and I had done my, I was not being lazy, I was not, not doing my work. I went in, I did the exam, patient was three centimeters, and I wrote that I thought it was vertex, because I did. And any OB will tell you in secret that this has happened to all of us at some point, this happens to nurses at some point. Um, they're bony and they're small, and it can, it can happen, especially probably if you've been awake for 36 hours. Um, but... I was not, when you hear a lot about mothers saying it was right. a surprise breach. Right. You know, you went in <laughs> exactly. and nobody caught it. Right. So this, I mean, it happens. And also everyone makes mistakes. But I was at home and I got three phone calls from people who are higher up than me just chewing me out. After I'd been, you know, this was my sleep time. And, and even at the time I thought, you know, this is really unfair. I tried my best. Like I didn't, I wasn't willfully you know, just writing something Negative down without checking. Absolutely. It's not that I didn't bother to go in and do the exam. I was wrong. 
And also, I'm not even fully trained yet. <laughs> like, how can you expect me to be right 100% of the time? But, you know, at that time, you're just tired and you just cry and you feel awful and then you have to get up and go back to work. And same thing happens when you have poor outcomes that even if nobody is blaming you, although in residency they often do, there's not a way to feel sad about it and there's not a sanctioned way to talk to the patients about it because everybody's worried about, you'll get different recommendations from attorneys. You know, you say, can I send a condolence card? No, because that admits guilt and in a court of law that could be, but maybe you need that and maybe patients need that too. And it's just, mm -hmm. I think the culture is very harsh. And I had a, there was another incident. Now this was when I was a chief resident and I guess I can think of two more incidents. There was one where um, there was a tracing that was not so good and mom had a fever and, and I actually did what I was supposed to do and which is called the attending and the attending came out and looked at it and we were making different interventions, but, um, I can't remember if the woman ended up with a C-section or not, but she ended up sick and the baby was sick. And one of the older nurses, when I came back to work the next day, basically said to me, this is your fault. You did this. You were supposed to, which I thought, I mean, I called the attending, but you know what, nurse, you could also have called the attending. I'm the resident, like, no one, like, why is this? But I think she wasn't going to say that to the attending. She could say it to me. And, uh, but those sorts of things hurt. And you always have this feeling in your heart that you could have done something differently and you're feeling bad about it anyway, because it's awful. And then to have people just heaping that blame on you is very difficult and sounds like a lot of blame lots of blame lots of blame and I'm there was another incident when I was a chief resident where um another poor outcome but it was the same sort of thing where you know and then you do these in theory it should be a good thing where you're looking for a root cause analysis and what can we all as a team do better mm -hmm. but it isn't really like that it's who messed up who can we point the finger at Right. Um, Sometimes you don't know the cause and you never can know the cause. Absolutely. And again, you're not going to have this idea that we have in Western medicine that you will always have perfect outcomes if you do things right. Right. Is very mm -hmm. dangerous. And mm -hmm. that you can eliminate all risk by absolutely. following the rules. Right. Because you can't. And that's something that both patients and physicians need to accept. And we don't live in a world where that's the case at this yeah. point. Well, it struck me when you said about, you know, wanting to maybe be able, have permission to write a condolence card to a patient. Mm -hmm. Sure. Treatment and I think, is... And it's hard to connect with your patient on a human level when a bad, with a bad outcome because, well, for one thing, I mean, aside from the malpractice where you're worried about who's recording this and who's writing it down and is it going to, you know, come back to bite me, you also have been trained to put all of that down because after a bad outcome you don't get to go home and cry and have quiet time or do mm -hmm. yoga what you have to do is see 40 more patients in the office or do mm -hmm. three more surgeries and you have to be on for those patients and you have to be your best and you there's and the schedule is such that you don't ever have downtime to process mm -hmm. and you're always working and it's that's really unhealthy to not be able to process it and is. integrate something that just happened, an yes. event or... And I think it's something that can bring us together as far as the physician-patient relationship, um, particularly with OB. And you know, I know that this is an interest, so you talk to a lot of women who have had bad experiences and feel like nobody listens to them. And, and been traumatized by their care providers. Absolutely. And I think if doctors... If we were able to admit that we're also traumatized mm -hmm. <laughs> and connect with their patients on it. I mean, I think for me, it's that feminist bond that makes it easy for me to understand where they're coming from with that. Mm -hmm. And I would love for them to realize that I am also traumatized <laughs> and that I'm also... For you patients know, to realize? Yes, mm -hmm. I think so. Um you know, and I, or and for probably you know, with regards to other physicians too, I think that it would make it easier mm -hmm. to have these discussions if you realize that um, we are also our hands are tied in a lot of ways with the way the system is, and that we're also scared because I think it really it comes down to fear and anxiety on yeah. all levels. So, yeah. um, but 
physicians have to admit that that's one of their driving forces also. Well, it's brave of you to admit that you're traumatized. You know, it's, it's sad that that's brave of you right. because we know it's true. We know that there's a lot of evidence saying that physicians are very traumatized. Nurses are really traumatized and have high rates of PTSD because of their jobs. Mm-hmm. And yet it's just something we don't talk about, is it? Nobody right. talks about it. Yeah, I think, I think more and more and maybe as, um, you know, there's certain physicians who are trying to bring light to the suicide rates amongst health professionals and um, I think about on social media, like the Z-Dog doctor who does, I noticed that he includes nurses in his, um, I mean, he does it in a humorous way, but there's a lot of truth to it. Um, I, I knew I was being traumatized at the time. I, I was, that was when the Harry Potter books were coming out and I love them. And I tried, I met my husband during training and I was trying to describe it to him, but I felt that when I finished training, I, I didn't even recognize myself. And I know some of that is on purpose because it's like you break you break someone down and rebuild them as a doctor again, just like the military. And but I compared it to the Dementor's kiss. I was like, my soul has been sucked out of me. Like I don't, I've lost like every reason I went into medicine. I can't figure this out, and I just I I do my work. That's but there's no feeling in it. I guess is wow. a way to say that. But um, working with women who have been trying to take back you know, control in their own birth experiences has, it, I mean, it's, it's been life-saving for me as far as job satisfaction and reconnecting with who I am. Um, and I, I hope other doctors can experience that because I feel that we deserve that kind of satisfaction with our jobs as well. We need to go to a quick break and we'll come back and I would like to talk about that. Okay. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. And we're back with Birth Aloud and Dr. Cooper, who was just saying that, you know, one way for physicians to sort of improve their, their job conditions and their quality of life and care is to actually reconnect with patients. We also talked a little bit about how physicians are traumatized, as well as we've got so many women saying that they are traumatized and have been traumatized by their obstetric care. And so in a weird way, there's there's this kind of common thing, this common theme or this bond in that we have kind of groups of traumatized people taking care of traumatized people and sometimes traumatizing those people. Um, but I think that's a really interesting point that you made that for you that this was a life-saving shift in practice was refocusing on your on your patients. Absolutely. And you know, I think it's not an easy thing to find to be able in modern medicine to take time with patients and to feel that connection anymore. Um, and there's a variety, you know, not to get into all the nitty-gritty of healthcare and healthcare reform, but essentially to cover expenses as far as sort of the cost of becoming and maintaining your physicianship (laughs) Um, and the lowering reimbursement and sort of the pressures that are coming from all sides, um, insurance and government and hospitals and all these other, all all the groups that physicians answer to aside from patients, you have to see a lot of patients in a day and you don't have time to connect, and you certainly don't have time to open yourself up emotionally to connect because you have to go into the next room immediately. And with even with covering labor and delivery, the volume has to be such that really to, to pay your bills, you have to have multiple people in labor at the same time, and um, the time demands and the fatigue, and also sort of I think the emotional fatigue from all these pressures closing in on you from all these different industries, mm-hmm. um, it makes it very difficult. And trying to control something that's uncontrollable. Right. Where there could be a mistake and... Right. Or, or even trying not to be a perfect, mistake. Trying to be perfect all the time is yeah. very... Like, it's impossible. Right. And something bad might happen even when there is no one to blame. Right. But someone will still get the blame. Right. And I think, I think there are some patients that 
expect perfection, but I think in my experience, there are a lot of patients who don't, and they understand that. And that these, the requirements from perfection, we often say it's coming from patient expectations, but I think a lot of time it's coming from our profession and it's coming from our peers. Even though we know <laughs> that we can't be perfect, we still will point the finger if someone else is not perfect. And certainly with, I mean, insurance and certainly with hospitals, you know, the same sort of thing. What do you think patients expect? You know, I think it's different on an individual basis. I think there are patients that do expect perfection. And um, medicine more and more is becoming sort of a consumer-driven um, industry with patient satisfaction scores being very important and customer service is very important. And there's, I mean, I think that that ties into all kinds of, again, unexpected outcomes. You want patients to <laughs> be satisfied and feel that they got good care, but it can be linked to the opiate academic, epidemic for sure. <laughs> it can be... Um, and certainly the malpractice crisis. And there are certainly financially as far as ordering unnecessary tests and what patients may perceive as good medicine is not always good medicine. Mm -hmm. And so there is, it's very easy when you're, if you're trying to cater to somebody to make more mistakes and have poorer outcomes. And finding that balance of, again, patient-directed decision-making <laughs> is, I think, important. How um, have you done that? Um, I would say it's still, it's not perfect. <laughs> you know, what I hoped is that if we have honest discussions and we can build trust, which, again, is very hard to do in 30-second appointments, um, that when I say, well here's what we know and here's what we don't know and here's this risk and here's that risk. And my advice would be such and such that that advice would be taken seriously. And it may be sometimes, but I think sometimes it's not. There are some things that medically I think are really important that I recommend that patients still decline. Like what's an example? Um, I think vitamin, I would use vitamin K <laughs> as a big example with that. Rogam even more so, which I've just recently um, had some patients who did not want to get Rogam during pregnancy. And I mean, I disagree with that decision. I can step back and say if I have appropriately counseled and talked about the risks and they decide not to, that is not my decision to make. And I still believe that that is not my decision to make. Mm -hmm. But it is going in some cases to lead to really poor outcomes. And I look at that as a failure if you know, if you were in a position where you had someone under your care and there's a preventable, really poor outcome, you know, and I, it's it's very hard for me to let go of that. Mm -hmm. You know, the downsides to Rogam and to vitamin K, I think, are exaggerated on social media <laughs> without any good evidence behind it, and it's frustrating as a physician to try to counsel appropriately when patients who also maybe are not so good at critically thinking or examining the evidence and haven't been taught that those skills in their own education are having a hard time, I think, differentiating. Mm -hmm. Well, I think some of that comes down to trust, right? Absolutely. It's all about trust. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's hard to build trust. And it's even harder to build trust when you have to see a lot of patients in a day and you have to be exhausted and you have to, you know, that's, you spend a lot, they've, I mean, all these studies on the EMRs, the electronic medical records, and how much time the physician spends with the computer entering, entering data, which is for insurance. Like, that's not for us. And Yeah. So a couple minutes ago, you, you were talking about, um, you know, counseling patients on risks. And sometimes, sometimes they make decisions that you don't agree with. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, your, your philosophy on that because I know especially in Alabama there are a lot of doctors who won't allow a woman to make a decision that they don't agree with that the doctor doesn't agree with sure. so um, can you talk about that a little bit I find it to be very freeing to have that decision-making taken off because again I don't think there's one right answer ever for an individual and quite frankly it's too hard to have to make those decisions for other people all the time I am um, I don't want to do that. So I do struggle when I, with worry, 
You know, I was in the Rogam case in particular, I was very worried that when we checked her blood after delivery, she was going to be sensitized. I knew she wanted to have more babies. Um, we don't have to get into the science of Rogam here, mm -hmm. but I saw that as possibly being a devastating kind of result and it turned out okay. So I was glad about that. Um, I still think she should have gotten it, <laughs> but I was glad that it turned out okay. And ultimately I'm able to let go because I do believe that women are adults and are in charge of their own bodies and have a right to make their own medical decisions regardless of whether they're pregnant or not. And remembering that that is my belief helps me when I start getting worked up about <laughs> some of these situations where I feel like I'm not getting through and they're not going they're not going to agree with me on this and I'm going to have to let it go. And to try to salvage the patient relationship, you know, I will counsel on that maybe several visits in a row and then I'm going to let it go. I'm going to document what we talked about, I'm going to document her decision and we're going to move on because it's not good for anyone to then have a labor situation where we don't feel like we're on the same team. So you have to let someone make their decision and you have to move on if you're going to be able to provide good care, I think, in the room. Now, if a physician says, I'm not going to be able to move on and you should probably find another physician, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that that is actually a good thing because then you don't get into that situation where you're in the room mm -hmm. caring for someone that you have emotions that are maybe not the healthiest. <laughs> so, and I have that with patients now, and it's hard because there's not a lot of other good options in Alabama. You know, there are patients who, what they want is an out-of-hospital birth. And my hands are tied in some ways by hospital policy, and I have to maintain my privileges at the hospital so I can't mm -hmm. just break rules all the time. And if I can tell that our relationship is a little bit deteriorating because I can't provide what they want, I will say, mm -hmm. have you looked into going to Tennessee? <laughs> have you looked into... And and I've had patients leave because of that. And I think that's better for both of us. Well, I think it's important to point out that what you're talking about is like an appropriate referral out, mm -hmm. <laughs> or um, which is different from a coercive, well, if you don't like it, mm -hmm. you can go somewhere else. Right. Which is a really, that's a very right. different um, feeling and approach to it. I mean, an easier for me decision is, I mean, I have patients who want narcotics in pregnancy for pain control. I'm not comfortable. I mean, I During am, pregnancy? Right. Not and during I mean, birth? Right. During, during pregnancy. And, and, and for, I mean, I should say, if you have your gallbladder out, yes, you need it. You know, there's things. But for like back pain in pregnancy. I'm not going to be the doctor who does that. I don't give narcotics for back pain in pregnancy. I don't give it for a urinary tract infection. And those patients are going to have to find another doctor who does. And I don't know who those doctors are. So it's sort of good luck, <laughs> you yeah. know, in finding the right one. But I'm not it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it's, it's good for the patient. But I think it's also good for me. And so I don't want it to seem like it's completely, you know, saint-like in that. And I think doctors should be able to do that if they're doing it for the right reasons. Now, trying to control women and just saying, I can't control you, so you should go, I feel a little judgy of that. <laughs> but I don't know if that's your, if that's the way that you can care for patients. And there are patients who like to have, I mean, that's the other thing, right? So the paternalistic form of medicine is not distasteful to everyone. Some people are much right. more comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And they would rather have the physician just tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And if that's the case, that, I'm not the one. I'm not the doctor for you. You will be very frustrated with me, and I think that's important to know about yourself and what you're looking for with your care. Let's go to a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back with Birth Aloud. So you mentioned earlier that your hands are tied sometimes in wanting to support, you know, your patients' wishes or decisions, and you definitely practice differently than like 99% of the doctors <laughs> in the state of Alabama. So what's it like being a doctor who's trying to provide a certain type of care, a better care, more patient-centered care, up against the pressures that, um, that you get as a doctor? It can be frightening. So... Um... You know, any time that you're sort of going against your community, 
you feel like you're losing your safety net with that. I feel that if I have a bad outcome, it's going to be held up as in, well, that's because she practices crazy medicine. And I'm not going to have support of other physicians mm-hmm. um, in, that you would want because ultimately you want that support if something bad happens. Um, Which is a funny like irony to the whole liability safety conversation is that sometimes doing something that is less safe for a patient is more safe for the doctor or the institution. It is. It is. And another interesting thing that I find myself worrying about is that in court, they don't hold you to evidence-based standards. They have something called community standards. And how you define community is interesting. Is it national? Is it state? Is it city? And that can be very disconcerting Mm -hmm. if you're sort of, you feel like you're out on a limb. And it's interesting because it's, because it's Alabama. So I have friends who are OBGYNs in other states and this is just normal what I do. (laughs) It's not, you know, they have, they work with lots of people who practice this way. And so Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. Sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm not really that much of a rebel, except I have become a rebel because this is where I live. Yeah. And um, when you look at the net, when you look at the state rates for C-sections, mm-hmm. you have a Utah with a 22% and Louisiana with a 40%. Exactly. Like it's pretty clear that different things are happening in those two states. Right. So a doctor from either place might find very different community standards in the other place. Exactly. And so you worry in a, um, you know, everybody's always worrying about lawsuits. And again, that fear may or may not be based on reality. I see that lawsuit numbers are maybe going down with medical malpractice and they're following these trends, but emotionally you feel like that's all the time. And that's something that comes from our training. But um, if the threshold in your community for doing a C-section is lower than the threshold in Utah, but you're being sued in Alabama, what does that mean as far as how Mm -hmm. the case will result? And And, you know, the other thing is medicine is still, there are more women in medicine going into medicine now than men, but it's still a very male-dominated profession, and especially in Alabama. And so what I have found when I try to make policy changes within the department or in the hospital, and mostly I put this experience on trying to bring midwifery care to my hospital, I get... Which is really unusual in Alabama. It is. There are only, I think right now three or four midwives practicing in the whole state, one in the in Birmingham, and that is the midwife who works with me. Mm-hmm. So there hadn't been a midwife practicing in Birmingham since I think the early 90s. You get into a situation where you're fighting the system and you're fighting with the medical staff and you are not taken as seriously as a younger female by the chief of the medical staff. And Sometimes there were threatening letters, and there were certainly unpleasant meetings, and and that's hard. That takes a toll. Um, well, I remember I remember you telling me a while ago about like the struggle to bring midwifery to the hospital. Yes, and it took three years. Mm-hmm. Like really, it should take yeah. three. Again, this is something in another state that you know it happens all over. You know, this is certified nurse midwives in the hospital, so it happens all over the U.S. Right, which is legal in fifty states. Right, and, which is legal here. Yeah. But um, we had to change the hospital bylaws to make it happen, and then come up with credentialing regulations. And you know, it's based on fear and a misunderstanding of midwifery training or whatever. But it was very difficult to do, and um, you had to convince them. I did. I had to convince um, that you know, the, convince them of what that midwife that this was safe. You know, that's again the safety argument. The hospital was saying that their malpractice um, insurance wouldn't allow them to do that. I don't know if that was true or not, but I can say it doesn't make sense because we take care of really high risk deliveries, and midwives would not be taking care of high risk deliveries. So from a malpractice point, it's not increasing. You're the actually risk. lower overall yes. you would be also sort of saying lowering there's your all the liability safety. risk. Yeah. Because... Well safety data on midwives is wonderful, obviously. Yeah. But you know they're and not you're taking... pulling in a lower risk population period. Right. They take care of healthy women. Exactly. They're not we already take care of twenty four week placenta previa. The midwives aren't bringing anything higher risk than that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it just it didn't make sense to me. But um, that was one of the arguments, and I think there was just 
physicians didn't. And I, you know, the reasons for that, who knows? It's, they go so far back and I know a lot of people have studied it in more detail, but they're racial and they're financial and they're, um, it has to do with misogyny. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of things that go into that, but into the prejudice against, against midwifery, midwifery care. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and some of it is just a turf war. We're all trying to maintain our businesses. It sounds like tough. It sounds like a real battle to provide a certain kind of care and services. I think it is tough. And I, you know, I think that's something that is also important for, um, women to understand as well, you know, and I'm, I'm aware that it's a, it's a sensitive issue because it's very easy to say, well, this just isn't allowed and it's out of my hands, but sometimes it is out as a physician. Right. And, and, but sometimes it is out of my hands. You know, I, when I look at my, um, battle for midwifery care (laughs) at the hospital, one of the things I really regret is that, one of the compromises I made because I was getting tired and it had been three years was that they did not want her to catch feedback babies, which obviously vaginal birth after cesarean. Yes. Which makes no sense because they come out the same way. So we already had a hospital policy that if somebody is for a trial of labor after cesarean, the OB has to be on campus. So we're already there if we have to go for a C-section or if there's an emergency it doesn't make any sense, but I just let it go. And I do feel bad about that because we do have a lot of women here who are seeking midwifery care who have had a prior C-section. And hopefully that's something that we will change in the future. But that's an example. Um, you know, there are certain hospital policies that I just, it's not worth it to me to fight on. Mm-hmm. And I am making that decision and women are not making that decision. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> and not worth it to you. Why? Because you won't be able to practice at that hospital. Right. So, um, you know, you push so far and eventually, you know, there is a hierarchy at the hospital for physicians and I could lose privileges at that hospital or, um, yeah, that's basically, I guess the big threat. And, um, so there's things like having IV access, right? So, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of women who don't want IV fluids in labor, and we don't have any kind of problem providing that. Mm -hmm. But the hospital has a policy to have IV access. Now, I still personally believe that every woman has a right to refuse whatever they want in their healthcare, including if that goes against hospital policy. But when we discuss birth plans, I say this is the policy and this is... This is like your one sticking point. Right, because... No pun intended. Right, exactly. (laughs) Which, and, you know, mostly because I feel like I'm not fighting that one. You know, I have to choose which which things I fight, I guess. So, um... Which, and I think it's worth saying that in pretty much any other hospital environment in at least the Birmingham area, probably most of the state, that that is a radical departure from the the musts or the sticking points for most doctors where, you know, your typical birth will be the woman is, you know, comes in, is gowned, gets in bed, has an epidural, has a catheter, won't be getting out of bed again, gets Pitocin, has her water manually broken, may or may not have an episiotomy to, you know, pull the baby out. Um, internal monitors. So yes, yeah. and oh, what, the internal monitor thing. I yes, Alabama does that. I swear, I've never heard of it anybody in any other states where they do the internal monitors. Yes, which and is where they literally be, screw something into the baby's head yes. inside of the mother. Yes, which and internal monitors, like any other intervention, have their place and there's a reason mm-hmm. for them. But to do it routinely is is not good medicine and. That is something, what I, I guess what I found as far as, and it was more Birmingham because I practiced in Gadsden and we didn't do that. So um, I was very surprised when I saw that. And what I see with that, it's less of a fighting women on it. In most cases, when I was at, when I was seeing this done, it was more the choice. It wasn't presented as a choice. And most right. women do not see it as a choice and don't question that. Right. And that's unfortunate, I think, um, for women to not realize that they have a voice in that or that Mm -hmm. they should have a risk-benefit discussion before any kind of intervention. Um, So I didn't see it as in turn an ugly fight or where the doctor said, well, my hands are tied, this is a policy. 
It just right. happened without a discussion. Which goes back to just sort of the paternalistic nature of a lot of yes. Alabama medicine. Yes. Or, or at least OB. I should, shouldn't say medicine, yeah. but OB. Yeah, but maybe medicine in general. I do think, I think that, I mean, I think that's how most of us trained. That's the way mm-hmm. medicine was in general for a lot of years. I think it's changing. Mm-hmm. Um for better and for worse. <laughs> it's not always a good thing, but and what's your what's your advice to to mothers, to patients who want to who want to see a change and who want to see more options and um, sure. more freedom as patients? So, I would say absolutely you want to choose a provider who you feel you can trust and who listens to you and will work with you and be sort of honest about the constraints they're working in um and if those constraints are too much for you you can try to find another option but i will say in alabama it's very limited so that's it's hard which is why sometimes you tell people you may need to go to tennessee to get the kind of care that you want right and not everyone can go to tennessee right so not everyone can afford that and not everyone can make it a drop make that drive in time so you know there's multiple things with that but um i would also say i think that physicians are the face of healthcare, and a lot of times all the systemic problems get put on the physician and i think it's important to remember that If you really want to see change, you have to go to the other powerful bodies. So yes, you have to talk to your physician. Your physician has to understand why you want this. And And respect your rights. And respect your rights. You also need to talk to your insurance company. The insurance companies make a lot of calls. You have to talk to the hospitals. Hospitals see you as consumers and will listen to you because money talks. (laughs) Um, They talk a lot about safety, but ultimately we live, you know, it's the market decides, I would guess is what I would say about that. But insurance coming, and then the last is the government. State government and national government has a huge impact on healthcare. You know, Medicaid is run by the states. Um, Having midwifery care covered by Medicaid is important. Mm -hmm. Having birth centers if you have a state that, for example, has repealed the rules and regulations for like, like a birth center, like Alabama, then, <laughs> then, for example, a doctor who might be interested in establishing a birth center is going to run into a lot of troubles. So there's only so much your physician controls. Um, absolutely, the dynamics of your relationship are important, and you need to make sure that the physician that you choose respects the dynamics you want. But there are a lot of other aspects of healthcare that are tying everyone's hands in this. And so if you're going to be a force for change, you have to have a broader approach than just getting physicians to respect your rights, which is an important part. <laughs> but there are a lot, there's a lot more that goes into it. Well, that pretty much wraps up our time. I think I it's think an exciting and interesting conversation to have. I do too. I think it can really be up piece of how change happens. I hope so. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kristen. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.